staccato handguns are trusted and approved by over 900 elite law enforcement agencies, including 65 SWAT teams. When it comes to accuracy and reliability, the choice is easy with staccato. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I am your host, Jim Dudley. And hey, check us out. We have YouTubes up of some of our interviews. You can get a good idea of what the person you're listening to looks like. Might have some graphics there for you as well. All right. Yeah, most of you know, I've already uh, talked about my experience working in an urban big city environment, uh, yet we still employed an underwater recovery unit and a marine unit in the San Francisco PD. We're only 49 square miles, seven by seven, but we are surrounded on three sides by water, the Pacific Ocean on one side, and then the bay that cuts across under the Golden Gate Bridge all the way down to the South Peninsula. So a lot of water, uh, ocean, uh, ponds, uh, streams, things within the city as well. And uh, today I am talking with an under underwater recovery expert in sonar. And I met uh, I met uh, this character at uh, Ailita in uh, St. Louis just a few months ago. And it is Ray Witches. And uh, he told me some unusual stories uh, for diving for cars and weapons. And, you know, unfortunately, a couple of uh, bodies as well. Some of his stories may surprise you. Well, uh, Ray Witches retired after nearly three decades as a conservation police officer with the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Ray worked in the field as a firearm trainer, a fitness monitor, uh, a sonar operator, and a trainer. He also served as Region 3 public information officer and worked in the reptile undercover unit. And I got to ask him about that. Uh, I hope he wasn't walking around uh, in an alligator suit. Hey, he spends time as an evaluator and role player at the Macon County Law Enforcement Training Center in Decatur, Illinois. Welcome to Policing Matters, Ray Witches. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Ray, I would say that a diver for an underwater recovery unit or anyone on the team has to be a little different, would you say? Oh, yeah, they're a special group, uh, especially with the, the water that I worked around and I ran sonar in. Uh, visibility is very, very low. So you really just kind of were feeling your way. And, uh, you know, if you don't have a, a pretty strong constitution, you'll run into some things that'll, that'll scare you. You know, those guys, uh, I've seen them come flying up out of the water scared to death. So it does take a special uh, special guy or, or gal to go down there in almost black conditions where you can't see your hand in front of your face and just feel around for, you know, what you're hoping you never find. Yeah, well, not only that, but you're in this environment that's almost nightmarish and uh, you're breathing through scuba gear. So it's not like you can step away from the action. You are in it. Right, right. Those guys... Uh, and, and, you know, in my career as a sonar officer, um, to find a really good quality uh, uh, dive team was was uh, so valuable. We would call them from an hour, hour and a half away, knowing that this was no longer a rescue, it was a recovery to get the right guys or gals there. Because we, you know, once we located, we wanted them to be able to go ahead and finish the uh, finish the job without any more injuries or fatalities. And, and quickly as possible so that we could, you know, 
you know, make final the the situation, unfortunately, that we're in that at that time. Yeah, we'll talk about that in, in a little bit about, you know, the trauma that you witness and and some of the um, toll that it takes on the divers uh, as well. Uh, tell us about a typical call out. Uh, how would that go? Uh, you're working patrol somewhere else. What type of calls would you be summoned to? It, there would be you know, several different times where you knew that you were going to end up having to utilize sonar where sometimes it would be a boat accident sometimes it would just be a, a fall overboard uh, sometimes you're looking for you know a homicide victim or a vehicle uh, or a missing person that you know you follow their route home and it happens to go by a lake or a pond or or a river so um, I carried a lot of my stuff with me uh, in the early days we didn't have a lot of equipment but that those would be the typical probably top three calls that we would get. Um, every once in a while, we would get one that we've got a capsized watercraft. So we had no idea if anybody was in it, um, if anybody was around it. And, and usually those are not even witnessed. Just somebody sees a capsized watercraft. So we'd break out the sonar equipment and start right away. While our cohorts were probably running the boat registration, trying to find out who owned it and maybe call back home and see, you know, hopefully they made it back home and they just didn't report the accident. Mm. And I would imagine you'd get your share of calls about uh, evidence that may have been dropped in water, weapons thrown overboard. Yeah, yeah, we get some of those. Um, and those are a little less, you know, urgent. Um, we 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 try to find weapons and, and things like that. We found a lot of vehicles that people would steal and they would dump. Uh, they would, you know, have their suspicion if something was stolen in Decatur and they lived, let's say, in Bloomington. We could kind of cover ramps or you know, ponds, lakes, et cetera, between those two. And a lot of times you could see the, the vehicle tracks, but mm. other times there was lakes, you know, Clinton Lake has, you know, five or six different ramps. So we would have, it would only take about 20, 30 minutes to run a ramp, but to launch the boat, run the ramp, trailer the boat, then move to the next one. You know, we're, we're talking a day, day and a half to try to uh, locate all those, you know, or at least clear those ramps in suspicion of finding that vehicle. So we we did find quite a few vehicles that way. We found vehicles, um, you know, one of the best ones we ever found when we were just training and we were just mm. looking at the ramps and making sure there was no cracks or leaks. And all of a sudden uh, we could see a vehicle. Uh, we could even see the trunk was open. So, you know, nothing suspicious there. We didn't think anything of it, but it ended up being a, a vehicle that was uh, stolen and dumped uh, about, you know, 60, 70 miles away. Hmm. And and training is a big component for a unit with the usual minimum standards that an agency may adopt. We're talking about serious business. What kind of personal commitment to training would a recovery team member be expected to dedicate? Well, as a sonar guy, you you got trained originally. My my original sonar was just the old paper graph that you used to see in the you know, Bill Dance outdoors when he was looking for bass fishing. And it was very difficult to locate things with that. But that's what we tried to use. Um, and then along came side scan sonar, which which really changed the game. And, and since I've started training way back and since I've retired, the, the technology is amazing. You can really see a lot of stuff. But the training itself was a couple of days of just nothing nonstop. You know, we spent about an hour and a half in the classroom. And then we got out on the water um, in southern Illinois where there was they had put trailers and picnic tables and vehicles and even one spot there was a, a crane and some other things in another spot there was actually a fuselage of a jet so that we could kind of get the idea what all these things look like we could find old bridges and things and identify it because the biggest secret to sonar was really trying to realize that what you're shooting is to the side 
and not straight down. So it's kind of shooting to the side and you have to kind of translate that angle of view onto the screen. And the biggest thing we always were taught and, and I always taught was if it looks like it doesn't belong there, then mark it. We'll, we'll put a diver down and, and, you know, and it, of course it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for a vehicle in 30 foot of water, that's pretty easy. That's a big thing. You know, you could, you could recover. I, I recovered a, I want to say it was a 28 foot boat in Lake Shelbyville. And that was pretty easy to find because there actually had been air uh, caught in the nose of the boat and the engine had taken it down. So it was standing straight up. So it was a 30 ish foot object that you sonared over and you could mark that pretty easy. So a body in 30 foot of water is a little bit different because now you're looking at something that's maybe let's, let's just give them, you know, a six foot uh, tall person. But yet if they're laying on the bottom, there might be a foot tall, you know, depending on how wide they are. So that was something that you had to look for and kind of uh, interpret the, the outline of what you're seeing. And what it really returns is the shadow that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. So if, if the side scan hits this object behind it, there's no, there's no sonar. It ricochets back off of what that is because bodies are pretty soft. So when you see behind it, you'll see more of a shadow. Mm. And if you see something that, you know, piques your interest, you'll, you'll crisscross it. You'll hit it at three or four or five or six different angles, you know, north, south, east, west, northeast, southeast, et cetera, until you really get a great picture of it. And then you can mark it. Yeah. So orientation is, is a big deal. And I would guess, depending on how long, the object or person's been in the water, then you've got uh, an amount of silt or maybe even uh, marine life or crustaceans or something else that, that might change the, the original um, uh, silhouette. It, in, in Illinois, uh, the, the silt is, is a huge deal. And that's one of the things that really caused it uh, a real problem. We were trying to find weapons. It just made it you know, very, very close to impossible. But as far as a person, if they sank down into it a little bit, we could see it. What we ran into a lot more was was tree stumps. Um, you could see tree stumps. And if you think about a tree stump that you see had fallen over in the woods, there's roots that hang out and sometimes look like appendages. So you would mark those thinking maybe you know, mm. if it's a six foot stump with a couple of appendages at the bottom. You would think, OK, let's mark that. And, and, and we had you know many, many times where we'd send a diver down and after we had marked it and it, it turns out to be a tree stump. There's other times when it's very, very clear that you could see that this is either a tree stump or the body that you're looking for. So mm -hmm. uh, depending on the the bottom, you know, again, how deep it is, uh, the depth of the water tells you how big the object will be. You know, if you sonar something in 10 or 12 foot of water, the body's going to appear to be much bigger uh, as opposed to one that's 30, 35 feet. It looks a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. And that 35 feet is about the real, we found stuff deeper than that, but with just side scan, and we have other types of sonar uh, in operation now, but with just side scan, that's about the really the maximum effectiveness of it was about 30 to 35 feet. Hmm. Yeah, you know, here in San Francisco uh, Bay, we had a, a pretty famous case of uh, this individual who murdered his wife, uh, Lady Lacey Peterson, and he took her out on a small craft, dropped her, wrapped in tarps, and I think maybe yep. cinder very, blocks. Very familiar with it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I know they originally uh, spotted it through sonar and uh, marked it, but then I think when they went back, uh, the tides and the current had moved it, and they essentially had to re-find her. Uh, how do you document evidence in place? 
Um, how are you lighting and documenting the scene? I mean, what are you under, once you find it, are you under a timeline to go down and get it? Once we find it, uh, a lot of the, uh, the uh, searches that I've done are in ponds or lakes. So really not much of a current. Um, what you do run into in a river, let's say um, I recovered a, a murder victim in uh, the, the Displays River years ago, and, and she was wrapped in a, in a carpet. So you have to know exactly that was very helpful because I would have thought that was a tree stump uh, itself. But the real issue is if it's a drowning victim, they're going to sink even in a current. Um, that's one of the things you, you have to remember. If it's a murder victim, they're not going to sink much as fast. And they are going to be affected by the current. Now, if you have difficulty or, or you can't locate the body in a certain period of time, and this is all going to depend on water temperature, uh, what they've eaten, if there's any alcohol involved, is the biodegrading of the body and the formation of gases within it. So when it starts to float back up, then it's when you have the issue with the current. Because mm. once it starts floating, it, there is buoyancy and it's gonna, it is going to float downstream then. Mm. And the lighting, do you use any sort of special lighting or is that affixed to your, your vessel? It's, it's usually, uh, we don't, they don't, I don't know what the guys use. They can use a spotlight down there, but again, it's so murky and dark that uh, I used my own flashlights on my boat up here to help if we were, if we were uh, trying to, if we were in any sort of urgency, we would work through the night to try and try and find the victim. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would use, you know, the flashlights that I currently sell to uh, illuminate what we had because the divers needed light. They're trying to work on, you know, what they've got going. They, they usually put down taglines so that they can make a, a grid search mm -hmm. of where we're at. A lot of times we would mark it with an anchor and they could just take the rope down within three or four feet of what I marked and just feel around in a circle. But uh, the lighting under the water is, is uh, around here was very difficult because it's just, it's, we call it black water. You just couldn't see anything. Um, and it's it's a little uh, if you, if you've got uh, claustrophobia, uh, that is it's not a spot to die for you. Yeah, you know, I mean, I could think of some of the nightmarish situations that you've encountered. I want to get to those after the break, but if, before the break, I'd like to ask you about technology. Have you seen anything uh, come after sonar? Are we seeing anything like a drone that goes underwater? Oh yeah, they've got they've got drones that go underwater now and and do the searches for you, and that has enabled them to go so much deeper. Um, and the drones have to carry lighting systems. Um, I don't know how well it would work in the in the water in central Illinois if it's really really muddy and murky. I think one of the other problems with the drone might be the fact that it may stir up some of that. Mm. But if it's running sonar with the drone, then then the murkiness is not going to affect it at all. So. Um, that has this the the technology for sonar has come a long way from just a simple paper graph that I used, and then I used the set the sonar side scan, and then we were able to get what's called a towfish, which is an effectively a looks like a missile or a torpedo, and the the transponder for the sonar is attached to that, and you can drop it down as far as the cable that you had, and that would make if you dropped it within twenty feet of the bottom of the ocean or the the, the pond or whatever. That's what it, it looked like. It was 20 feet deep. So you could really get down there and sonar a lot better. We mm -hmm. also had something called sector scan, which you could just drop in and it would spin. Uh, and it looked like that old uh, round sonar or radar that you used to see on the old submarine movies, you know, that pinged. And uh, those those were very effective, especially if you suspected the body had washed up underneath an undercut or in some brush piles. You could flip up the camera or the transponder and 
literally sonar into the the bank or the uh, the brush pile that you're looking in. Hmm. All right, I've got a bunch more questions for you, and uh, some of them, uh, you know, we'll get into maybe some dark areas of our own. But first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Choose the handgun trusted by over 900 law enforcement agencies across the country. With Staccato, you can feel confident knowing you aren't sacrificing incredible accuracy for reliability. Whether you're protecting your family at home or on duty, Staccato has your back. Military and law enforcement receive discount pricing through the Staccato Heroes Program. Visit www.staccato2011 backslash heroesprogram.com to learn more. That's staccato, S-T-A-C-C-A-T-O, 2011 backslash heroes-program.com. And we're back and I'm speaking with Ray Witches, retired police officer, underwater uh, sonar operator, uh, working with underwater recovery teams. Uh, police officers, Ray, already experience such awful first person, even vicarious um, experiences, trauma from situations and incidents. We've had people here in, in, in my area throw, you know, children off uh off docks into the bay, uh, other heartbreaking experiences. You told me about one, about a, a vehicle down a ramp. Uh, how do you recover after a search for uh, for bodies in these situations? You, you know, one of the first things that you have to realize when you get there, you have to kind of stop maybe and just take a breath and think, okay, you know, this is, this is a pretty fragile situation. You've got to be as professional and really what I would just call monotone is possible, you know, get there, do your job, you know, and, and uh, remember that it is your job to assist in finding the vehicle or the bodies or whatever that you do end up recovering. Um, we were always right there when, when they brought the bodies up after we found it. And again, unfortunately, sometimes there were children involved and uh, but every one of the bodies and every one of the victims that you see uh, really does is have a little bit of effect on you. Um, and, and that's one of the things that you'll see officers in a, in a horrific situation. Let's say it's a murder scene or if it's a horrible crash, vehicle crash, boat crash or, or something like that. We, we have to uh, shield ourselves from it in different ways. We're still in front of probably the media, the family, um, a bunch of uh, bystanders by now because the news travels so quickly, especially towards the end of my career when the cell phones came out. Uh, you could have, you know, a news team there with it, you know, quicker than I could get the boat there and get the sonar and launch. So um, we really dealt with it in different ways. And, and uh, you know, thank thank goodness nowadays there's a lot of help out there. And the stigma of, you know, hey, you're a police officer, you got to be tough is starting to go away. You, you know, these guys really we see a lot of bad stuff, you know that. Uh, so you have to either get help or make sure that you talk with somebody about it, uh, whether it be the person that's on the scene or whether it's somebody that has experienced the same thing that you know of later on, a retired officer, uh, somebody that's, you know, you trust a lot and you can talk with. And, and and guys will deal with it in different ways. You occasionally will see a group of officers at a spot where it's, it's a pretty bad scene. And the news team catches them talking and maybe even smiling or laughing a little bit. They're not laughing about the scene. Um, that's something I really want to stress. They're laughing about something else that's helping them psychologically you know, shield themselves from what they've just seen. It's sometimes you, that's how they deal with it. 
Um, so it, it is it is difficult, but you find what uh, what works for you. And if you can't find something that works for you, you you find out where you can get some help. You know, you yeah. got to talk. Yeah, and you're right. We've had so many great guests who talk about uh, PTSD and therapy and counseling and and peer resources and and so many others. So great that we have that now. Um, but I can imagine still, you know, we talk about swimming around in a dark water environment on a breathing apparatus, and then you encounter, you know, a horrific scene underwater. That's got to stick with you for a while. Well, and the guys that do that, um, most of the time, and I mentioned earlier, we wanted some really competent people. And a lot of those guys were either firemen, paramedics, or uh, also police officers of, of some sort. So uh, there's a lot of county dive teams that, you know, they would uh, come and help us out. We didn't have our own dive team because we're such a small agency and we're spread out. But we would call other county dive teams. There was a couple of fire department dive teams that were just amazing. And and they had uh, counseling afterwards every time uh, when those situations. And we were invited to it to to talk about it if you had issues. And, you know, most of the time you went and it was just a a good feeling to talk to those guys. And then we probably had a cookout afterwards, but it was a deal where you really needed to get with the people that were in involved in that scene or that situation. Like I said, they would come up and, you know, they would have that special look or they'd give me that signal, like we've got them. And then, you know, we would go from there. And again, you have to maintain that professionalism until you get to that fire station or that sheriff's department. And then you can kind of break down and start talking about, you know, what you saw or what they saw and, and how you deal with it. Yeah. Well, I guess that's your af after action debrief, a burger and maybe a beverage. It, it, sometimes it, that, that's one of the best things. I know that uh, one of the very first ones I experienced, I want to say it was around 1990, uh, was, it was a horrific scene. And uh, they brought in, um, uh, I want to say it was a, a priest to come and talk to us about it. Um, and we thought that was kind of unusual. No, it, Nobody had done that before. And it was one of our fellow officers. Uh, the one that I'd actually gone to the academy with, so I knew him very well. And uh, I, I, you know, you think you're doing okay, but it really felt I felt better after just a you know 20 minute roundtable discussion with you know who they brought in. And I thought, well, that's and, and the way they did it, it was like, okay, everybody's coming. You know, not do you want to or do you need to? We're just going to have a district meeting, and everybody's going to show up, and we're going to have this this gentleman talk to us and. And uh, I like the way they did that, you know, not they didn't force you, but it was it was an assigned district meeting. So everybody showed up and it, it really made you deal with it a lot better. Uh, I, I remember particularly after that walking out thinking, you know, I, I do feel better now. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. So switching gears a little bit, maybe end on a lighter note. Uh, what was your biggest unusual find? Uh, you didn't expect maybe the, I guess you, you told me about one the the car you didn't even you weren't even looking for anything else along those lines that, that was probably it uh you know when when we found that you just we were just scanning ramps just literally practicing um probably you know one of honestly the biggest surprise was the very first I think it was probably 18 to 20 days after my real training was side scan sonar we got called to paint a lake and we found, uh, you know, back then when you got called to a drowning, like, oh, this is going to be three days or four days. And we launched a sonar, found some waypoints, and we found the body within 18 minutes. Wow. We made about eight, we made about eight to 10 swipes and uh, dropped the anchor and they came up and 
you know, of course we were all acting like, yeah, we do this all the time, but, uh, me and uh, me and the other my fellow officers, a guy named Bob Liebel, were just so ecstatic that how this training really worked. You know, we we weren't we 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 believed in it, but we weren't sure it was going to be uh, this much faster because normally we had to drag, we had drag blind. Um, we would uh, you know hope that we would find it before the body would float. Mm. Um, you know, and that's one of those situations where. Oh, it does work. And and then you start to believe in it. You start to practice, you know, a couple times a week. You just didn't have anything to do that day. So you went out and practiced with it. Oh, um, you want to talk about real surprises. We had a boat go over the spillway once and uh, we had to start dragging in a concrete uh, opening of a, a, a dam spillway. And we found two bodies within 20 minutes. And again, you just, there was, unfortunately there was three that, and we found a third one three days later, but the first two we came right up on and uh, uh, we're like, Boy, we're going to be out of here in an hour and a half, you know, and then we're going to go back and do all our paperwork and get the the, the reports from uh, the uh, coroner and everything. But uh, it didn't. It, that was kind of surprising that we were able to recover those first two. The coroner hadn't even showed up yet. Uh, my captain uh, had been there, but the, the director and all these other people hadn't even showed up yet. You know, so you kind of felt, you know, boy, we we are doing something that's a little bit worthwhile in a bad situation. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think your advantage is if you have a lake or a pond or something with with finite perimeters, you're going to keep searching until you find it. In San Francisco Bay, the current is so swift. Uh, Coast Guard came out when a woman threw her children into the bay, and it was already a recovery at that point, not a rescue. And the Coast Guard threw out a buoy with some devices, GPS and lighting on it. And just to get the sort of pattern of of the um, of the current to, to at least get a, a, a an idea of where to look. Mm -hmm. um, you really want to have a starting point, right? Where that last last scene uh, victim was last seen so that you could start and then you can kind of judge the wind and the current. Um it's funny to hear the uh, buoy with GPS and everything because we used a uh, an old milk crate with some uh, old old weights in it that we put aluminum siding or you know the old shop aluminum that you used to make box traps out of uh, riveted to the side so that would show up really well on our sonar so we could tell the divers right where it was at so we had to improvise that so there's another sign that technology has come a long long way because we we carried around a milk crate with some old uh, you know 25 pound uh, barbell weights in in the bottom. That's great. That's where those 25 pound barbells went. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Guys in the gym are losing their tone. Hey, so I want to wrap it up. Your bio talks about your role as a reptile undercover unit. You got to <laughs> let me in on what that's about. Well, years and years ago, and I think they still have these swap meets. They would have reptile swap meets uh, in, in the Chicagoland area, the St. Louis area, and the Indianapolis area. And we started getting reports from pet shops that they were selling illegal reptiles. And it all started in Illinois. It's illegal to collect from the wild and sell. Um, mm -hmm. And there's there's been some other uh, regulations and stuff in the meantime. But uh, they they knew that I was a person who had kept reptiles all his life. So I, I was one of the only ones that could identify now I couldn't tell you scientifically why this was a Burmese python or you know a spotted turtle or whatever it was. So we had a biologist come with us, and he would set off to the side. And when I would go in and purchase whatever we ended up purchasing, uh, he would positively, you know, because we had to have that expert witness in court. 
but I knew what it was. I couldn't tell you that, oh, because the uh, carapace is so many inches wide and this, but so he could do that, but I could say that's a spotted turtle and et cetera. And we ended up buying a couple of, we bought a Gila monster, a baby Gila monster. We bought a, uh, uh, an American crocodile, which is an endangered species back then. And we bought a Galapagos tortoise and it was, it was maybe three and a half, four inches around by at that time, it was a baby. And what he, we had discovered was they were robbing the eggs from the Galapagos islands, taking them to Florida and hatching them and then selling them uh, at all these places. So, I mean, it, you, any reptile almost on the face of it, we bought poisonous snakes, we bought all sorts of things. And a Gila monster is a poisonous lizard. But uh, that guy ended up selling us that Galapagos tortoise and the American crocodile in the parking lot of a red lobster in Chicago at about three in the morning. And he possessed a firearm when he did it. So now he's possessing a firearm in the commission of a felony. So he got five years in, in federal prison. So can you imagine how he had to tell people why he's in prison for selling an illegal turtle? But uh, it was, it, it's a very serious thing uh, because one of the, one of the biggest things that people import and sell illegally is, is animals. So you see a lot of that. And uh, we, we, we spent, I think we made 30, 38 cases just one summer of guys selling all sorts of illegal reptiles. Mm, yeah. It, I know it, was, out, it was super interesting. Yeah, I know out here, the, the shark fins are a big item. Yep. Uh, yep. Where they're catching oh, yeah. sharks, cutting the fins, and then releasing them, and then they die, of course. Yeah, there's uh, baby leopard sharks were just a, a huge deal way back. People that are really rich would get those, and, and they're beautiful fish. I know they're sharks, not fish, but they would... Uh, they look great in their aquariums, but they were so popular and so in demand that it caused a real problem with those. And, you know, bear galls is another thing. Mm. Uh, you know, you could you could go on and on and on with all the stuff that they would, you know, kill and sell or just sell as a pet. And of course, you know, once you get an American crocodile and you have it for a pet and it's 18 inches long when you get it, when it becomes four or five feet long, you just throw it in the lake and you've killed it essentially. Uh, it's oh. not going to survive in the uh, in the Midwest. So uh, there was we we seized many many alligators and crocodiles over my career, and, and this thing called the caiman, which is a crocodilian uh, as well. So uh, it, it was it was very interesting, and it was it was nice to be able to use what I had, you know, chased my sister and my mom around the house with snakes all my life, trying to scare them. So it, it, that brought my expertise into uh, working in the reptile unit for a while. Who knew? Who knew it would pay off? <laughs> exactly. Yep. Well, Ray, hey, thanks for spending time. And I knew, you know, running into you um, at uh, Ailita, you had some great stories and glad to get you on. Appreciate the work that you've done and, and the work you're continuing to do. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, to our listeners, hope you enjoyed uh, Ray's story. You can check out his bio in our show notes. And uh, yeah, he's um, he's a character, a real authentic guy. And uh, let us know what you think and let us know who you want to hear from or hear about. Drop me a line at policingmatters at police1.com and uh, let me know. All right. Take good care. Hope to talk to you again real soon. <laughs>